Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan. Joining me today is none other than Corey Howitt. Corey, how are you doing? Doing great. I'm super stoked to do the final episode and overview of Exodus. Me as well. This is the final episode in the book of Exodus. To me, it feels like this one went by a little bit faster than Genesis. Perhaps that is perceived only. Nevertheless, if this is your first time here, welcome to the podcast. If not, you know how it works. But essentially, this podcast builds on itself, meaning that it is cumulative in the episodes preceding this one. It builds from those. So if you haven't already done so, I would recommend you go back and listen to the other episodes in the Exodus series, at the very least, if you don't want to go all the way back to Genesis. But going all the way back to Genesis will give you the fullest experience possible. Nevertheless, since this is an overview episode, it does stand on itself to some degree, so you can listen to this one alone. There's no wrap-up today because the whole episode is a wrap-up. That being said, let's go ahead and jump into it. So the book of Exodus, we've seen a lot happen, and it's a little bit cleaner as far as the narrative goes than, say, Genesis. Genesis had a whole bunch going on with it, had a bunch of different sections that we really had to cover. In this one, we kind of get one consistent narrative dealing with Moses and the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt and God bringing those Israelites to himself and dwelling with them in spite of them. And so we're going to be covering that very concept in this episode, but let's go ahead and start from the beginning. Corey, how did this book begin? Yeah, so the book starts with really clear connections back to Genesis. So in the very beginning of Exodus, we see Israel is in Egypt still. That's right where we left off. Joseph brought his family, his brothers, his fathers to Egypt. And all of Egypt and all the lands around them were blessed because of Joseph. And we see that continuing on. The people are still in Egypt and everything with the people are still good. and. We know for sure that they're doing good because we have a clear connection back to early on in Genesis, like the creation account early on. It says in Exodus 1 verse 7 that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied. That's from the blessing in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, right after God created the humans. So we have a very clear hyperlink to the end of Genesis, but also the beginning of Genesis to show that the people of Israel are doing good. But yet there is a problem. They are in the land of Egypt. We're out of the promised land. And that's not the only problem because in the very next line, after verse 7 comes verse 8, and we get this literary cue that things are not going to be good. It says that a new king arose over Egypt, one who did not know Joseph. And we know that Joseph was a very good character who had good relations with Egypt. And so everything turns sour. This new king in Egypt puts the Israelites to hard labor. He starts killing off all of the boys that are born to the Israelites for fear that the Israelites might get too strong and overwhelm the Egyptians by sheer numbers and might. And so we go from really quick to really good in comparison to both the beginning and end of Genesis, to immediately go into like an anti-creation. So creation in Genesis was all about life and everything was good. 
and we immediately pump the brakes on the goodness in Exodus and see hard labor as opposed to the day of rest that God gave. And we see death being brought in as opposed to the life that was going on. And out of this really harsh circumstances going on to Israel, we have the birth of Moses. And one of the things that we talked about a lot in Genesis was, hey, we're following the blessed line. The blessed line that went from Adam to not Cain, not Abel, but Seth, and then to Noah, Abraham, and went all the way down to Judah. And thinking, oh, we have an origin story of this guy named Moses. Is he going to be the guy? But Exodus really quickly tells us that we're not going to be following the same subject anymore. So Moses is from the line of the Levites, like one of the worst tribes of Israel's sons. So we're no longer following the blessed line. We're no longer looking for the Messiah coming imminently in the book of Exodus. We're looking for a savior to come and save the people from this bit of slavery. Right. So we have a much smaller goal taking place at the very outset of Exodus. Okay. And that's going to be kind of the theme of Exodus, taking the big goals that were set out in Genesis and kind of bringing them back. It's like, hey, lower your standards. Don't go looking for the Messiah quite yet. We need to just get out of Egypt and get to the promised land. And we're going to see even that goal of getting to the promised land kind of lessened down a bit. So from the very get-go, from the first couple chapters of Exodus, we see the shift of focus differ dramatically from Genesis. So now we just need to get out of Egypt. And we know for a fact that Moses is not the guy to reverse the curse of Genesis. We're in a totally new game being played with totally new focus. And so going from the birth of Moses, Dylan, you want to take over? Is there anything more you want to focus on with Moses and his birth story? You want to just go on from there, move forward? Given that this is the wrap-up episode, we did cover the birth of Moses in some detail in our original Exodus episode. So if you did not catch that, go ahead and go back and listen to that. We did tie the birth of Moses story in with a couple other significant births in the respect that they follow very similar patterns. Moving on from the miraculous birth of Moses, following the king's edict to kill all the firstborn children in Israel at that time, we get to verse 23 of chapter 2 that really serves to connect what happened in the birth of Moses with what is going to happen next. And so we see that during those days that the king of Egypt died and that Israel was groaning because of their slavery and that they cried out for help. This cry for help then reaches God, and God, hearing the groaning, remembers his covenant with Abraham, another hyperlink back to Genesis, and then he decides that he's going to do something about it. In verse 25, it says, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so then what we get is something very interesting. We get this character, Moses, now actually meeting with God. And so this character, Moses, kills an Egyptian, and he does this because of the fact that this Egyptian was beating a bunch of Israelites. The Israelites say, hey, we know that you killed that Egyptian, and Moses flees. And this is important because Moses flees to the desert and starts hanging out with Jethro, this priest of Midian. And while hanging out with Jethro, Moses gets married, does all this stuff, starts taking care of this flock. And then as Moses is taking care of this flock, he finds a mountain. 
And there's nothing particularly odd about finding a mountain until Moses goes up and on top of this mountain, we see an ace or a bush tree that's burning. And oddly, this ace doesn't burn up. And so Moses then decides to go investigate. And this is where the story really starts to take on a turn and where we really get the big picture of the book. And so God basically appears to Moses out of this burning bush and says, hey, Moses, I've seen my people in Israel. I've seen their groaning. And because of that, I am going to do something about it. And Moses says, great, fantastic. What's that? And God says, I'm going to send you back to Egypt and you are going to approach Pharaoh and you are going to do mighty works in front of him on behalf of me and demand that my people be let go so that they can come and worship me. And this is where it, we get our little goal that Corey was referencing. And that is that they can come and worship on this mountain. And finally, the big goal so that they can be taken to the promised land. And so in chapter three, we get this whole picture of God meeting with Moses, Moses being reluctant, and God stating who he is. And so Corey did a whole section while talking about this chapter three on God's name, which I asked uh, for him to go through once again in this episode, because I think it's fundamentally important to our understanding of how God has revealed himself up until this point. So we see in verses 14 and verses 15 of chapter three, Moses asks God, who should I say sent me if the people ask? And so God says something very peculiar. He says, I am who I am in English. But as we know, in Hebrew, there's a very specific word for this. So Corey, go ahead and take us through that going through this name of God, the personal name of God. This is the first time God reveals this to someone. We talked about this back earlier in Exodus. Although we've seen God's personal name before this point, like in Genesis, like as early as chapter two of Genesis, it's because Moses wrote Genesis, right? And the people know this. So this is where God first gave his name. And it's significant because because God never gave his name to any of his other servants, not Abraham, not even Adam. So we have God's name being given. And this name, I hear you know, some discrepancies of what the significance of I am who I am, what this means. And some think it's uh, about him being eternal, like I will be always what I will be. And that's not quite it. I've had some Hebrew professors really good Hebrew professors who single in on this idea that although that might be part of it, it's God defining himself. And so if we want to know God, we better know God the way in which he defines himself. It's cool to have this verse early on in Exodus and then later on in Exodus, Exodus 34, we'll see God define himself again by his characteristics. And that will be the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. But within this phrase where God says, I am who I am, besides the meaning of he defines himself and, you know, all the ramifications with that, of how important it is that we understand who he says he is instead of what we might think he is. There is the Hebrew behind it is really interesting. And the Hebrew behind this, when God says, I am who I am, the Hebrew word sounds something like eye. So God says, eye. But you and I might hear 
the personal name of God be pronounced like Yahweh. So every time you see Lord in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is Yahweh in the text. When we say God's personal name, we're actually saying he is. That is giving credence and praise to him instead of ever daring to say, oh, I am when we say his personal name. So God says, literally, I am, and we are saying he is by saying Yahweh. Okay, and then there is this idea that we brought up and um, we went over the 10 words um, in Exodus 20 and maybe even the, the section after that. But people had stopped saying God's personal name out of fear of saying it wrong, like using God's name in vain. So we talked about that verse, which we can look into later in Exodus 20, verse 7. It wasn't about speaking God's name, but yet people still stopped speaking it. They stopped even writing it at times. And so people stopped using the name Yahweh, but we don't need to be so concerned. Like, oh no, people stopped saying God's personal name Yahweh because what Paul says in Philippians and what Jesus said about his life, when Jesus said things like, before Abraham was, I am, or when Paul says in Philippians about Jesus that God gave him the name that is above every other name. So this personal name of God, Yahweh, is absolutely something that should be used. God says, this is the name that you are to use throughout all generations. So don't stop using it for any reason, even if you have good intentions. Unfortunately, people did that. God has given Jesus the name above every other name. And so here we see that Jesus is our personal God, our intercessor. He has the name that is equivalent to that of Yahweh. So we don't need to worry like, oh, shoot, I'm not using God's personal name in Yahweh. Well, we have Jesus. He is our intercessor. He is God himself come flesh to dwell among us. There's a really clear connection from this scene at the burning bush to the coming of Jesus. And if we missed it in any ways, Paul helps us out um, in his books, such like Philippians, as we saw there. Dylan, was there anything else you wanted to say here? So we have God giving Moses his personal name. As Corey just said, this is the first time that this name is actually given to a character in the text. It's the first time in the text God has revealed himself this way to a character in the text. So even though, like Corey said, it utilizes that name in Genesis, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, none of them had God reveal himself to them as as I am, or as Yahweh, as we would say. So we already touched on the goals that are brought forth in chapter three. So the two goals, they are much smaller, as Corey already mentioned, than the big goal in Genesis of finding a Messiah. Now, our two main goals are A, get Israel out of Egypt and bring them to this mountain. And so we talked about in the podcast earlier that this mountain that Moses is on is Mount Horeb, and that Mount Horeb is equivalent to Mount Sinai, two names, one mountain. And so basically God says, bring the people here that they may worship on top of this mountain. So that's the small goal. Larger goal than that is to get the people to the promised land. So they're in Egypt. They should not be in Egypt. They should be in the promised land, as we expect from Genesis. So two goals set out. How does this then come about? Moving on into chapter four and continuing through this big narrative section, 
on the plagues, we see Moses finally, begrudgingly perhaps, go back to Pharaoh. And he says to Pharaoh, hey, God said, let my people go. And in order to prove that God has said this, he unleashes the signs, the 10 plagues, uh, starting with the staff that's thrown on, not a plague, but then moving progressively through these plagues, Pharaoh consistently hardens his heart as God foretells. And because of this, when Pharaoh hardens his heart and when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it's happening specifically, the text says, so that God's glory may be known. And so that Israel can know who this God is that is delivering them, and so that Egypt can be judged for their wickedness. And so there's a two-pronged approach that God is here utilizing through these plagues. So it's to punish Egypt and to highlight his glory in Egypt and to deliver Israel and to highlight his glory to his people so that when they actually do come to the mountain, they may know that this is the God who saved them, who has delivered them from Egypt. And so as we went through the 10 plagues, we mentioned that the cows got killed so many times. I don't know what the cows did to deserve so much wrath from God, but all the cows die multiple times. And Corey talked about how the 10 plagues are a form of decreation. And so there's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation with each plague and each day of creation. But overall, basically what is going on here can be thought of as a hyperlink back to the Genesis 1 account where God, instead of creating and ordering this world that he has created for these humans, instead, he's actually taking what would be an otherwise orderly world and bringing chaos upon Egypt so as to highlight his creative power and his ability to do with his creation what he will. And the reason we brought that up and thought that that was particularly important to highlight in the podcast on the plagues in particular is specifically because there are a section of people who do propose that perhaps these plagues correspond to specific Egyptian gods. And that may very well be the case, but the text doesn't say anything about it. And so because of that, we can't actually make any sort of accurate claim on that topic on the basis of the text alone. So as we read through the scriptures, it is important to note that we're not looking to any other form of knowledge, be it history or philosophy or anything else, to understand the text. But instead, we're asking the question, what does the text say? And so in asking the question, what does the text say and how does it present itself, because it doesn't mention this, this probably wasn't the main aspect that the author is trying to get us then to understand about this. Nevertheless, we do have as a big picture the fact that God is judging Egypt through this. And so the 10 plagues go all the way through up until the final one, which is the death of the firstborn child. And this is significant insofar as it corresponds to the very same edict that the king of Egypt had imposed on Israel at the beginning of this book. So at the beginning of the book, the king of Egypt says, kill all the firstborn males of the Israelites so that no deliverer can come from them. Pharaoh said, kill all the boys. And now God is saying, just kill the firstborn boys. So it's actually a bit more gracious of God. It's it's not an equal punishment for what was done. It's more gracious than maybe what Pharaoh and the Egyptians deserved. So 
we see the character of God show throughout all these plagues. He's showing that he is a just God who cares deeply when his people are oppressed and does not care for oppressors very much. But yet, even on the oppressor, he shows some grace. He shows some mercy to them. But yet, justice is done. And in this tenth and final plague of the firstborn, we see God say, all the firstborn males that open the womb are mine. And you can redeem your firstborns by giving up an animal for me, or you could give up an animal to me. This ultimately plays out in this first occurrence of the Passover when God is sending his angel of death over Egypt. The Israelites are saved by slaughtering this lamb and putting the blood over their doorposts. So we see here's a picture of people being saved by blood. So blood atones for death. And we'll see later on in the continuation of Passover, the blood of this animal atones for life. That is the price for a firstborn that belongs to God. Right. And so there's so much imagery pointing forward to some firstborn son that must come to some lamb that must be slaughtered to atone for death. There's just so much stuff going on with Passover, which we will only see just more more imagery coming out when we get to the life of Christ and all the pointing back to this moment and the other celebrations of Passover that are coming up. But without spending too much time on the Passover, we see God deliver his people with this final plague. And so Pharaoh finally says, get out of here, go, take all your people, take all your animals. And they go and God hardens Pharaoh's heart again. He changes his mind. He wants to go back and get the Israelites again. But God's doing that to draw them towards the Red Sea. And then God ultimately opens up the Red Sea using Moses and his staff, which he's done for a lot of these plagues already, these signs and wonders. And God allows the Israelites to pass through on the dry land and draws the Egyptians in by their hardness of heart and evil intent to go into the waters after them. But the waters close in on the Egyptians while the Israelites had passed through on dry land. And this is another hyperlink back to creation, something that Dylan was pointing out, that as God brought out the dry land from the chaotic waters. So now we see God draw back the chaotic waters for Israel to go safely on dry land. So those themes of water are still chaotic here, just as it was in the very beginning, and dry land still having some security and safety to it. And so just another clear theme being portrayed here to the chaotic waters and the people getting to pass through. They get out of the Red Sea. And now, well, after they get out of the Red Sea, I should say Moses sings a little song and he says, all right, now we're going to the mountain. They're wandering through the wilderness to get to the mountain. But now without a few hiccups along the way, they complain and grumble against Moses And we pointed out then in that episode of these desert wanderings that the people really aren't grumbling against Moses. They're grumbling against the God who is behind Moses, the one who's actually doing all these things. So really unfortunate of the people, even though they've claimed and promised like, oh, we will do whatever God says and we will obey. So they've already showed that their word and promise to obey God doesn't really mean much. That's going to be important pretty soon. But then we come up to Exodus 19, 
which is the big section of this book. So in Genesis, when we did the overview for that book, we broke it down to the different sections or showed um, how the author ordered the book with uh, the use of a repeated phrase. But here, the book of Exodus, like Dylan referred to in the beginning, has just been a lot cleaner and smoother. It's all been building up to this small goal. It's all been building up to the mountain. The mountain is the peak of the book. So we might get caught up in the crossing of the Red Sea or the burning bush or even the 10 plagues. But those things were just to get us to the mountain. And so now as we get to the mountain, we should have laser focus in on this scene and what is to be done here. Uh, So Dylan, I'm going to pass it off to you. What's so important about the mountain? What's this all been building up to? Glad that you asked. So up until this point, like we've already said probably four or five times in this episode alone, the small goal is the mountain. God has specifically said, I want you, Moses, to go and deliver my people so that they can come and worship me on this mountain. What the book has been building to then is a meeting between the Israelites and Yahweh. God has introduced himself to Moses and in turn to the Israelites by his personal name. I am who I am, Yahweh, right? And so because he has introduced himself in such a personal way and drawn them this far to himself, he now desires that they actually come and meet with him face to face. And so getting then to the foot of the mountain in Exodus 19, we have what I like to call the high point of the book. You can even think of this book perhaps as a mountain itself, where a mountain has a peak and two sides. If you look at it in two dimensions, so too does this book have basically from chapter one to 19, it's building upwards to a point And then from 19 on, it's building down where everything after 19 points back to what happened on top of the mountain or what didn't happen on top of the mountain, as we're going to see in just a second. And everything from 1 to 19 points upwards to it as well. So this is the high point of the book. They finally get to the mountain, the base of the mountain, and Moses begins to consecrate the people. We talked a little bit about the idea of consecration. Basically, it means to clean them and prep them to be holy. And so that these people are going to be specifically set apart to meet with this God who has delivered them and has revealed himself to them by his personal name. And so in Exodus 19, we see a very clear picture of the covenant that God wants to make with these people. He says, I want to make you a kingdom of priests. So these people are going to come up the mountain and meet with God, and together they are going to be a nation, a kingdom of priests. But all doesn't go according to plan. And so when you read through the text in English, it does seem a little bit muddy. It does give you the impression that perhaps the people weren't ever supposed to go up the mountain, but instead send Moses alone. But that's not the case. And we talked about that in great detail in the podcast on this episode. So if you haven't done so, I would recommend listening to that one. If you're not going to listen to any of the other episodes in the Exodus series, probably that one would be the one I would point you back to. I think it is the single most important. If you do read through this 
in Hebrew or a more accurate translation of this, you will find that the people were supposed to come up the mountain. The ram's horn was going to blow. The people were consecrated. The people were brought out of the camp and brought to the base of the mountain. It says that the people weren't supposed to touch the mountain prior to being consecrated and brought out and brought up the mountain. They weren't supposed to touch it because God's presence had descended on top of this mountain. So the very God who had brought these people out of Egypt is now sitting on top of this mountain, waiting for these people to come up. Up says, don't touch the mountain until the proper time, which is when the horn blows. And so we see the horn begin to blow. Proper time, right? And the people fear and shake in the camp, is what the text says. And so they become afraid. And not the good kind of afraid, the bad kind of afraid, that they don't want to approach this God because he is scary. This God who just did everything for them, brought them out of Egypt, he provided for them in the desert, they are afraid of this God, so they shake in the camp. And then, all of a sudden, the text takes a turn. So instead of saying, okay, people come up, they approach the base of the mountain, and then that is where they're barred. They're no longer allowed to come up specifically because they fear and don't go up when they were supposed to. So then, because they don't go up when they're supposed to, God says, none of you are going to come up. So they actually send Moses up on their behalf and say, Moses, you go. And God says, okay, Moses, you come up. Tell everybody else, don't come up the mountain. Because if they do, they miss the chance. They should be killed because they're coming up the mountain when they're not supposed to. Nobody else can come up now. And now all of a sudden in the text, instead of God making this people a nation of priests, now all of a sudden we get a distinction in the text between the priests and the rest of the people. So now they're a nation with priests, not a nation of priests because they didn't come up the mountain. Nevertheless, God in his graciousness decides that he is going to still make a covenant with this people through Moses. And so that is kind of the setting for the 10 words that we'll get to in just a second in chapter 20. The people were supposed to come up the mountain and they didn't. Moses goes up on their behalf. God decides that he is going to make the covenant with the people through Moses. But this covenant is going to take on different form than had the people actually gone up the mountain originally. Corey, anything else on that? No, except I'm still just bummed about it. Come on, guys, let's go up. But yeah, as far as now following the ramifications from that decision, we see commands giving instead. So up until Exodus 19, we've seen only story, pretty much. There's been little bits of poetry in between, but it's all been narrative. So the people don't go up the mountain, Exodus 19. Exodus 20 then turns into the first bit of discourse. And discourse is just teaching or urging or like here we see commands. And so Exodus 20 in Hebrew is known as the 10 words because the word for word in Hebrew is used here. So it's the 10 devarim. And so the 10 words are given because the people refused a relationship. So let me repeat that again. The people traded in a relationship with God for rules. That's what they missed out on on the mountain. And so, I mean, what a bummer to get instead. So God gives them the 10 words. And as we went through 
the 10 words and the commandments that followed after that, we did realize that God was so gracious in the commands he gave. I mean, he talked about caring for sojourners in the land, talked about caring for slaves. I mean, slaves were not seen as people. They were just objects. But now God says, hey, I care for slaves. I care for women. I care for the land. I care for animals. And this is how you're going to treat these things. So we see God giving great grace with these commands, but still it's such a step back from having a relationship with God. And it's really reminiscent of the fall when God told Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the option instead was to trust him. Well, now, instead of going up the mountain, after all this time where God was trying to communicate with his people, the people didn't want to do it his way. We miss out on this big opportunity to, in some ways, reverse the curse, or maybe not the curse, but in some ways to reconnect this relationship that was lost in the garden between God and man. And now it's mostly just God and Moses, and Moses relays things to the people. And from these commandments about how to view God, how to view others, we then go into instructions about the tabernacle. The tabernacle in Hebrews, literally means dwell, to dwell, or a dwelling place. And so God is wanting the people to make a place for himself to dwell there. And so after God gives a list of commands of how he wants his tabernacle to be built, how he wants his priests to prepare to serve there, because like Dylan said, there's a nation with priests instead of a nation of priests, after we get all of those instructions for what the tabernacle will be and what the priests will do, we have this little break in the story where God says, Hold up, Moses, go down, for your people have sinned a great sin. And sure enough, the people told Aaron to make them a god out of their gold. And so Aaron makes a golden calf, and the people bow down to this image. And they, in doing this, break the first command of, you shall have no other gods before me. The second command of, you shall not make any images for yourself or worship them. The third command, do not bear God's name in vain. And so they're breaking the first three words, as Dylan pointed out in the, I think it was the last episode, right? The shiny cow, shiny face. Yeah, so in shiny cow, shiny face, the people break all these three commands by making a shiny cow for themselves to bow down to and calling the cow itself Yahweh. Aaron says, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And so just such a huge bummer that the people do there. And, and in this situation where God's ready to wipe out all the Israelites, start over with Moses, we see Moses offer this intercessory prayer where he says, God, Remember who you are and remember the promises that you have made. And we mentioned that this is kind of reminiscent of Abraham trying to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. But in Abraham's intercession, he says, well, what if there's righteous people there? Well, those cities ended up getting destroyed because there was no one righteous there. So Moses learns from that and says, instead of trying to argue on behalf of the righteousness of the people, which he knows he would have no argument, he argues on behalf of the character of God. And so God says, yeah, what you said is good. And we see Moses continue to draw in close to God. And every time Moses draws in close to God, God draws closer to Moses. 
So Moses asks that God would accompany the people through the desert. And God says, yeah, I'll come with you through the desert. I will no longer leave you because God had threatened to leave the people. It's like, I can't deal with you guys. You guys are stiff-necked people. So Moses asks not only for the people to be saved from God's wrath, he asks that God would travel with them. And then he asks God to show him his glory. And so God says, hey, I'm happy to do it. So it's a beautiful picture People drawing close to God. God draws in close to them. So really cool picture we see out of that scene where God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34. We see God iterate this amazing verse in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The most quoted verses in the Bible says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So this is the verse I was talking about matched back up to God self-identifying himself at the burning bush. We see that it's really important to have God's idea of who he is rather than coming up with some idea of God and just rolling with that. That's what just about everyone else does. But God says, I want you to be set apart. Worship me as I say that I am. Worship me as I instruct you to do so. Don't do what's best in your own eyes. And so we we go from the shiny cow and the shiny face of Moses to the completion of the tabernacle. And the completion of the tabernacle, we should maybe be on edge thinking, I hope that the people got it right. Because if they mess this up, they miss the opportunity for God to dwell with them. And so we see at the end of Exodus The people get it right, and God enters into the tabernacle. This is really surprising that God would limit himself to a tabernacle or to a box. I mean, we live most of our lives within churches who say, don't limit God to a box. But here, God limits himself to a box for the purpose of being with his people. That's just mind-blowing. That God would do that even after the people refused to go up to Sinai, go up on the mountain to meet with him. God says, you know what? Fine. Let me come down to you. We see God's grace and mercy flooding through this tabernacle scene, which is a scene that we might just gloss over and do our you know, Bible read through in a year. And we get to this part in Exodus and be like, oh, this is boring. What's the point of reading about the tabernacle? Well, this is the point. God wants to dwell with his people. And that is such a powerful truth. But the book ends with the great problem. And the problem is that nobody can enter the tabernacle, not even Moses, because God's glory dwelt there. So people needed instructions on how to then approach the tabernacle. Yeah. So we end the book with God in a box. Interestingly, from the episode shiny cow, shiny face. We saw Moses meeting with God, like Corey said, and being able to see God's glory and radiating the glory of God on his face. And so the people give up the real 
presence of God, the real glory of God, being able to actually go into that glory themselves on top of the mountain. Instead, they allow that to pass by and are pleased with or happy with a replica of the glory, basically getting a glimpse of God's glory through Moses's face alone. And so then God, in spite of the people, like Coriotis said, limits himself to this box, this tabernacle, and the people are able to still dwell in the midst of God, or God dwells in the midst of the people, but nevertheless, it's not the same as if the people had gone up the mountain. And so the book ends on the problem that Corey already said, and Moses can't even go in this tabernacle. So we're going to have to figure out next time how that problem is resolved. So the book of Exodus, in a nutshell, 32nd version, Moses is born. God uses Moses to bring the people to the mountain. People are removed, saved from Egypt. They pass through the Red Sea, wander in the desert, grumble at God in spite of the fact that God just saved them, by the way. God continues to appease the people by helping them through the desert, bringing them to the mountain where the people are expected to come up and meet with God. The people decide that, you know what? God's kind of scary. Let's not go and meet with God and let's stay in the camp. And so they send Moses up. Moses goes up the mountain, meets with God. God creates for them a new covenant. This covenant is categorically different than the one that they probably could have had had they gone up the mountain. Every time the people consistently fail and sin, they get more commands. And so they get the 10 words. They break the 10 words, three of them at least, and make a shiny cow. And then Moses goes back up and meets with God. God decides that he is not going to annihilate the people, but instead is going to be gracious to the people and dwell with them. The people complete the tabernacle and God fills it. And so we're left at the end of the book with God dwelling in the midst of the people, but the people still not having full access to God. So we're going to be seeing how that's going to be resolved. With that, we'll go into the section on the main idea of the book. Remember, in the wrap-up of Genesis, we talked about main ideas and how it's always good when you're reading through a book to, after having read through it, create a single sentence, main idea that sums up the book to the best of your knowledge. That way, you can take this main idea and you can actually teach something of the book from the main idea. So, the main idea that we came up with for Exodus, I should say that Corey came up with for Exodus, is that Yahweh is merciful and gracious to save and dwell with his covenant people. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, swiped right out of Exodus 34, where God actually proclaims something about himself, the Lord, the Lord, the merciful and gracious God, pulled right out of that. And this God, Yahweh, is merciful and gracious to save his people. So he delivered his people from Egypt. And as we read through the rest of the Bible, we're going to see how that word save takes on even more connotation than just delivering from Egypt. This word save is going to come to mean something more metaphysical, perhaps, where the people are not only saved from some sort of kingdom or power or earthly thing, but the people are saved from the very problem that we've already established coming out of Genesis. And so God is merciful to save both by delivering from Egypt and future by bringing the people to himself. 
And he wants to dwell with his covenant people. We see the fact that God is consistently merciful and gracious in spite of the people. It's not because of the people. The people didn't do anything to deserve God dwelling with them. As a matter of fact, they consistently fail. They build a cow and call it Yahweh. And yet, God still chooses to dwell with his people. So, again, the main idea, Yahweh is merciful and gracious to save and to dwell with his covenant people. It's the main idea that Corey came up with for Exodus, and I gave my stamp of approval to. Corey, anything else on the main idea? This is just such a profound truth. And I I don't want my main idea to ever stay as just like this intellectual exercise of summing up the book well. But yeah, I'm always just humbled by Exodus when I come to this big idea picture of the book, realizing that God wanted to save and dwell with his people, Exodus, and that, that shared truth to my life. Like I'm God's covenant people. I'm part of the church. Just taking that truth and knowing that God wants to dwell with me, like that scene where Moses keeps asking God, like, show me your glory. Let me see you. And God was just so stoked to dwell with him. And I forget that. Even though I know Jesus is a personal God, I know Yahweh's personal name, I forget that God wants to dwell with me. And I just want to say that to the listeners out there as you're listening to this right now. Be encouraged because of what God says about himself. And one of the things that he says about himself is he wants to dwell you. So dwell with him. And that shared truth cannot be overstated. Probably going to spend the rest of my life thinking about this big God who wants to dwell us. Yeah, it is an absolutely profound truth. I think that is a fantastic word for it. Profound. The idea that the God of the universe could have stayed up there. He could have had nothing to do with the creation once he created it, especially after they fell. And yet this God has consistently, we've seen already just in the first two books, reached out to his humans and been gracious and merciful to them so that he could bring them back to himself. And that does expound all the way to the church where now through Christ, we actually do have the ability to see the glory of God, not like the people here who saw the glory of God as a reflection in the face of Moses, but we can see the glory of God for ourselves. And that is something that's amazing. So we'll go ahead and wrap up the podcast there. This has been the recap of Exodus. If we didn't touch on anything that you're curious about in this particular episode, go back through the entire thing and we probably touched on it there. Definitely feel free to reach out to us with any questions you have on the book of Exodus, on the book of Genesis, on anything else. We love to chat. The email address that you can do that at is scripturechronicles at gmail.com if you'd like to ask questions or dialogue with us. You can also check us out on our website, thebibleisastory.com. There you'll find our blog. You can access the podcast. You can access the YouTube channel. You can donate to the channel there. We do have a PayPal account where you can donate or a Patreon page where you can support us if you would like. The show is paid for completely out of pocket. Also, don't forget that we are on all of the major podcast portals. We're on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all of that stuff. So leave a review for us wherever you listen. It does help out the show's visibility. Also, if you're blessed by the show, please do consider sharing the show on Facebook, telling your friends about it, pointing them to the website, anything like that, so that other people can be blessed by the show as well. Again, guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode, for joining us through Exodus. Join us next week when we jump into Leviticus. As always, guys, shalom, adios. Shalom, adios. 
before I missed I it again. I was muted. <laughs>